we continue on. Uh, I gave an introduction last week um, for our series as we enter here into the Colts, and uh, I had mentioned <clears throat> that we were going to be looking at several Colts. The list that I gave, and I categorized them into three different categories, uh, pseudo-Christian Colts, anti-Christian Colts, and uh, Colts of Apostasy, uh, that list uh, isn't final. Uh, all of the cults up there I plan to look at, but there may be ones that I uh, decide to add um, as we as we move through this series. So um, I, I mentioned last week that we're going to begin with Mormonism. Before we get into looking at Mormonism, uh, we want to begin with prayer and ask for God's wisdom. So let's pray. Our Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, give us wisdom from above. Give us a, an eye of mental awareness to your holy word. We pray that you would help us to codify in our minds the truths of the Christian faith as we look at them in contrast with distortions and perversions of that truth. We pray that you would get the glory this morning, that you would sustain us, Bless us and keep us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the method of uh, this series is going to be really uh, an exercise in, in looking at comparisons. And uh, there's a lot of material to cover here this morning, so I'm not going to waste a lot of time uh, with introductory house cleaning uh, uh, you know, qualifications. Um, but just suffice it to say that the basic method is going to be one of comparison and contrast. And so what I would like to do this morning is I'd like to begin with an orthodox statement of the Christian faith, specifically as it regards God. And we're going to do that by looking at the Athanasian Creed. All right, the Athanasian Creed is one of the most helpful, um, I think, summaries of Trinitarian theology that there is in the history of Christian theology, condensed and qualified. It's repetitive. It's helpful for catechesis in terms of teaching your children. Um, and so what I would like to do is begin with this because it's going to set a background. It's going to set a background stating what we believe as we go into what the Mormon cult believes. So let's begin with this. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic, or by that he means one. He's writing the 4th century, so he doesn't mean what Catholic means today. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic or one faith, the true faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the faith. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings, there is but one eternal being. 
so too there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, there is but one. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords, there is but one. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so true religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone, the Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller in their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their trinity and their unity and their unity and their trinity. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the trinity, the one true God. But it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith. That we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and He is human from the essence of His mother, born in time, completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although He is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He arose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the Father's right hand. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their own deeds. This is the true faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. Now what we'll see is that um, these truths that have been confessed by Christians for 20 centuries um, are outrightly rejected and distorted and twisted in the Mormon cult. And the implication of that is not that uh, everyone in Mormonism uh, is to uh, be shunned or ignored or avoided, um, but it does mean that the Mormon system is quite wicked and that it works to deceive people, and it has deceived many people. I think I read that there are 13 million Mormons worldwide. Uh, so that is quite, that's quite a number when you're talking about a cult like this one. So with that in mind, a statement of the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity and doctrine of Christ, two of the most important doctrines that happen to be two of the most obvious doctrines distorted in the Mormon cult, 
uh, let's begin by looking at uh, a brief history of Mormonism. There's a very early, uh, very interesting, not early, very interesting uh, story of how Mormonism began. Uh, the uh, distilled, uh, polished account that you might receive from a uh, Mormon evangelist, an elder or their pupil, layperson, um, is going to suggest that Mormonism started rather organically uh, by instrumentation of revelation that Joseph Smith received here in the United, United States, beginning in the Northeast. The actual story of how Mormonism developed is um, is less discussed when you're in those kinds of conversations. The time period of founding is the 19th century, so that's the 1800s. So we're in the 19th century, 1800s, specifically 1830, April 6th in Fayette, New York is when the uh, Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints is formally established. April 6, 1830, in Fayette, New York, by Joseph Smith. The three main uh, influences of Mormonism are, are these. Now, they would want you to think that it's Joseph Smith as, as receiving revelation from, from God. Um, but the the influences of Mormonism are actually uh, three men, Sidney Rigdon, Joseph Smith, and Parley Pratt. Uh, Parley Pratt was one of the first missionaries in the LDS. Uh, Joseph Smith was, of course, the face of LDS. Sidney Rigdon was the doctrinal mind behind LDS, happened to be a Baptist minister who rejected, of course, uh, Christian orthodoxy. And... Um, had all sorts of strange ideas that he was preaching from his own pulpit. Um, anywhere from a denial of uh, the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, uh, denial of the deity of Christ, uh, not so much the denial of the deity of Christ, but the denial of the consubstantiality of Christ with, <clears throat> with the Father. So he was a, Sidney Rigdon, this first individual, was a Baptist minister who had developed several heresies in his preaching, uh, he wasn't accountable to, to any body of Christian, Orthodox Christian teaching, confession, creed, none of that. He went off on his own. and He was eventually excommunicated from his own denomination. Uh, Parley Pratt was a member of Rigdon's church and eventually became one of the first Mormon missionaries. And then Joseph Smith meets Rigdon, Sidney Rigdon, in 1830, and the two virtually merged uh, their weird, strange, very exotic... Um, ideas. They merged their ideas to form a single movement uh, that we now call Mormonism, uh, that they call uh, the Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, so that's just a brief history. There's a lot more that goes uh, into it. If you're more interested in material on the history of Mormonism, uh, I have a four-volume set of the fundamentals, uh, and within the fundamentals there is a, uh, uh, a rather detailed essay <clears throat> included in that body of work that is, I think, very helpful. Let's look at the structure of the Mormon church. So, uh, and I put church in quotes. Uh, it's obviously not a, a true Christian church, uh, but it is uh, a an assembly of sorts. So I'm using the word church in the broadest possible sense here. Um, a lot of people are confused when they meet these missionaries, these Mormon missionaries, uh, when they come to your door or when you meet them 
uh, in public, and you know, you usually see them on bicycles. They're wearing helmets and white t-shirt, white button-up shirts, and name tags. Um, a lot of people are confused about who those guys are and uh, their relationship to their own organization. Um, I'm going to go through a brief ecclesial hierarchy. How is their organization structured? Uh, this helps you understand who these guys are on bicycles riding around trying to talk to people about their Jesus. So their hierarchy is as such. Um, and if I could draw the little man on top of their steeples with the trumpet, I would, but I'm not going to be able to do that. So um, the hierarchy, the structure, their polity uh, is... First, I'm going to put this in quotes, Jesus. We know that's not the true Jesus, so that's why it's in quotes. Uh, second, under him, whoever that is, uh, probably a demon, uh, you have prophets. And I mean that. I'm not just poking fun at the cult. I mean that. Whenever you have strong delusions like this, they're all driven demonically. Um, so under under him, you have prophets. Uh, prophets... Uh, Joseph Smith, for example, is a is a prophet. Brigham Young is a prophet, was a prophet. Um, under prophets, you have apostles and the seventies. Seventies is like a board of seventy men that kind of co-administrate. Uh, the rule of the church, along with the apostles. Um, there are 12 apostles at any given time uh, that govern the, the Mormon organization. And then you have your local leaders under them. The local leaders would be divided into elders and priests. Not every, el every elder is a priest. Not every priest is an elder. Okay. Uh, and then at the ground level, uh, the local uh, facilities that you see when you're driving around. If it's not a temple, uh, you're seeing a uh, a ward, or uh, you know, there's a, a smaller unit than that. I can't than that. I can't remember the the name of it. There's wards, and then you have temples. Now, when you see those temples, if you've ever been to Utah, specifically Salt Lake City, and you've driven through there, and at night when you drive through there, of course, you come down off a mountain if you're coming up through the south, and you can see temple after temple in the distance. Every temple, this used to be the case, I don't know if it's still the case, but the standard used to be in order to build a temple in your community, you had to have 100,000 Mormons. So if you think about that in Salt Lake City, you see temple after temple after temple after temple. A temple, for a temple to be built, for a temple to be constructed, the rule is that there must be 100,000 Mormons in that particular area. Right? So that's a lot of people that we're talking about when you when you when you uh, go to so when you when you drive um north is it um 435 and there's the temple up there is that clay como um i'll say so there's the temple up there uh north of here um there's supposed to be a hundred thousand mormons in any given community before one of those kinds of temples are built and of course you have kind of the the home office, the headquarters in Salt Lake, Salt Lake City, where you have the uh, the large temple um, in the middle of of town. It's 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 absolutely massive. Uh, very strange what's on the inside of it as well. We won't go through all that uh, today. Uh, there are things that we could say about just about the the temple system of Mormonism that's very um, uh, interesting, but in a very uh, odd and and almost uh, off-putting way. 
uh, a couple of the a few few uh, distinctives going along with the structure of their church. Prophecy continues, so the canon's open, right? Uh, the canon's open, so you have a continuance of prophets. Uh, you have a continuance of literature that's said to be revelation from God. They call it latter-day revelation. And basically what you have, if you're, if you're wanting to know what the Mormons hold to be authoritative for them, you have basically six different books. You have the Old Testament of the Bible and the New Testament of the Bible. But then you have, thirdly, the Book of Mormon, which everybody knows about. Usually people know about that. You open an end table in your hotel room. Sometimes you'll find those Books of Mormons if it's not a Gideon's Bible. Uh, and then fourthly, you have Doctrine and Covenants. Doctrine and Covenants is another important work written by Joseph Smith that's formative for Mormons. Then you have the Pearl of Great Price, another formative authoritative work that they recognize as an authority. And then you have, sixthly, Study Helps. Study Helps is like an encyclopedia. If you want to know what uh, Mormonism believes about any given doctrine or term, you can look at Study Helps. Study Helps will tell you what, what they believe. Um... Mormon wards, and this is pretty popular, this is pretty, this is kind of a, I found this to be kind of a rule with cults. Mormon wards will attract members through economic incentives, okay, and this is how cults operate. They don't attract members through the proclamation of the gospel, relying on the Holy Spirit to convict souls and bring them to Christ. Right? They, that's not, that's not how they attract their members. They attract their members through economic incentives, uh, many times. So, Mormon business owners provide jobs to members. That's an incentive to move and to find yourself within a Mormon community centered around a ward. Uh, they'll provide financial assistance to committed members. So long as you remain committed, they've got your back financially. So, that's another incentive. Um, the economic life of each member is tied to the church. So uh, I remember in Hawaii, uh, there's a whole Mormon neighborhood off Kamehameha Highway. Kamehameha Highway is the road that we would always, two-lane highway that we would take off from base uh, on the uh, north side of the island. We'd, we'd go to North Shore using Kamehameha Highway. Every time we drive through there, there was a Mormon community uh, that was all Mormon. All of the houses that were purchased within that neighborhood were purchased by uh, the Mormon ward, uh, and they were there for members of, uh, of the Mormon church. Um, and so the church would buy the block out, right, and then basically have houses there for their members to rent at lower cost or whatever. Um, and so what that means is when you're interacting with a Mormon, you have to understand that there are other reasons for why they would reject what you're trying to tell them. It's not all about the truth, is what I'm trying to say. There are other reasons for why they would reject why you're what you're trying to convey to them in terms of the gospel of Jesus. Um, there are economic incentives for why they would remain uh, in that cult and why they would continue to teach what they're teaching. Because once you get that wrapped in, to a particular institution, organization, cult, whatever, it makes it all the more difficult to actually make decisions based on the truth. Now you're making decisions based on the welfare of your family because this institution has control of your housing, this institution has control of your job, this institution has control of everything. So now you can't come to a conviction based on what the Scripture says and make your decisions solely based off of that. You have all of these other economic tie-ins. 
that if you make a decision to detach from the Mormon church, it's going to practically ruin your life and the welfare, the, the physical welfare of your family. So understand that, that as you interact with, with, uh, with Mormons and you interact with Mormonism, that is uh, one catch that's going to make it very difficult for, for them to um, come to our side of things in terms of, 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 what, of what we believe. That's why you're going to have to rely on, we're going to have to rely on the Word of God and the Spirit of God to convict them, uh, to make them bold, to trust the Lord, uh, that when they do make that move, that He will provide for them. Um, okay, so what I want to do now, that's it. That's the hierarchy. That's kind of how, how they understand themselves in a contemporary sense. You get uh, uh, a good deal of, of the history, the wave tops of the history. Uh, now what I want to do is I want to walk through five essential characteristics or doctrinal beliefs of Mormonism. Uh, I would submit to you that these five beliefs are really, they serve as five pillars for their theological system. And so if you are able to show or demonstrate that one of these or two of these or three of these are wrong, uh, then you would uh, be able to at least show them the truth. Uh, whether or not the Lord draws them and opens their mind to that truth is another question. But at least we can honor the Lord in showing them the truth uh, when we are put in that situation, when we're put in that opportunity or given that opportunity. The scripture tells us to know um, how to defend our faith and how to convey our faith, how to proclaim the truth, just as Paul did to the Greeks at the Areopagus. So too, hopefully we can do with regard to Mormonism and these various cults. So there are five things that they believe, and I, I really haven't decided beforehand how I'm going to go through this, but I think what I'll do is I'll go through these five beliefs, and then we'll look at how, we'll look at what we believe in opposition to that, all right? We'll, we'll, we'll try to answer, um, you know, some potential objectives as we, uh, objections as we go. Um, one of the fundamental beliefs that structures everything they, they're going to say to you, everything that, uh, everything that they're going to understand about their church, one of the essential beliefs is this, that after Jesus and the apostles in the first century, um, so after, let's say, after ascension, um, and you can understand after ascension and the apostolic ministry of the first century, uh, the organizational structure of the church was completely lost. The structure of church lost. And it remained lost until the time of Joseph Smith in the 19th century, conveniently. All right, so you're looking at 1830, all of a sudden, the true church reemerges with revelation given to Joseph Smith in the United States. Um, the second is uh, essential. The Godhead, and this is probably the most fundamental in a lot of ways, the Godhead, we talked a little bit about this already. The Godhead, you know, we use that word in, uh, in, in our theology, and by that we understand the Trinity. Uh, but the Godhead is made up is three different 
gods. What am I doing? I write in all caps, so it's hard to do. Uh, three different gods, uh, and those gods consequently are called Father, Son, and Spirit. All right, so this is the part where I was telling you last week, you know, this language, if you're not discerning in terms of what the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is, this language can wrap you in um, because it uses a lot of the same terminology. Um, now, uh, what they believe about the Godhead is that, you know, most starkly and the most obvious issue here is that it's tritheism. Tritheism is the belief that the Trinity refers to three different beings, three distinct beings, or three distinct gods called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, listen to what they write in Doctrine and Covenants. In Doctrine and Covenants, um, Joseph Smith writes this. This is uh, section 130. Verses 22 through 23 it says the supreme governor of the universe and the father of mankind is who God is. Um, we learn from the revelations that we have been that we have been given that we've been given that there are three separate persons in the Godhead, the father, the son and the Holy Ghost. Separate persons should raise red flags. Uh, the persons in the Trinity are not separate. Josh and I were having a conversation last night about the doctrine of the Trinity we say that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the same essence, right? So another way to simplify that, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the same thing. They're the same thing. They're the same being. They are distinct personal relations in that same being, all right? But here it says they're separate persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From latter-day revelation, we learn that the Father and the Son have tangible bodies, of flesh and bone, and that the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit without flesh and bone. This isn't Doctrine and Covenants, by the way. This is Study Helps um, uh, on the definition of God, and it cites Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verses 22 through 23. So do you hear what they're saying there? They're saying that, it, uh, you know, essentially, fa- when, when, they, when they say Father, when they say Son, they are talking about an embodied person, someone with, someone with physical, you know, with flesh and body. Now, we're not talking about the incarnation of the Son. God the Son is one God with the Father in eternity past, who in the fullness of time assumed to himself the fullness of a human nature. So he hasn't always had a body. That's just, he's, that's a, a body, flesh, a human soul is something that he assumed in the fullness of time, remaining always God, assuming human nature in the fullness of time. That's not what they're saying here. They're saying fundamentally, God the Father and God the Son are not only two different gods, but they're embodied. They're physically embodied. They have anatomy, right? They're anthropomorphites. That's that's what we would say. This is the heresy of anthropomorphitism, where uh, it is said that God the Father... Um, or just God in general, the divine essence, is uh, contained in a body, a celestial body or a body of flesh. So that's what they believe. Doctrine of Covenants, 130 verse 22, says, The Father has a body, this is Joseph Smith, The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. 
Now, you, you think about what Dr. Ed was teaching the other night on Wednesday. And, um, and you, you think about how terrifying that is to think that God just is one of us. Um, uh, that song in the 90s, what if God was one of us, you know, kind of thing. This, 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 um, this sinful tendency to want to see man or want to see God as man and wanting to see man as God is something the Mormon cult has given into. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The Son also, but the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. All sorts of misunderstandings there. We'll look at how that contrasts with what we believe here in a moment. So that's the second distinctive. The third distinctive, and this will... This will help you understand how they think about sin, original sin and all that. Adam is to be celebrated for his fall. Adam is to be celebrated for the fall. And the reason they'll give for that is this. If not for his fall there would be no advancement and spiritual progress of humanity on this earth. Adam rightly should be honored, not denigrated. All right, so Adam is to be seen as this noble character for falling so that we can achieve spiritual progression. All right, rather than giving praise to God for how his providence has fallen out, we're to honor Adam for his fall. Okay. The third distinctive, Adam is... So when you read Ancient of Days in your Scripture, in, in the Bible, in your copies of God's Word, who do you think the Ancient of Days is? Absolutely. I think in Daniel you see that pretty clearly. Uh, also in Isaiah. Um, but for them, the first Adam, not the second Adam, the first Adam, the Adam that fell, is the Ancient of Days. Now, Brigham Young started a doctrine uh, called Father God, or Adam, Adam, Father Adam, or uh, or Adam God. And um, Brigham Young, who was a prophet for uh, the Mormon Church, start began a doctrine during his his time as a prophet uh, that suggested that Adam is the father. Now, officially, the Mormon Church denies that narrative. Uh, they reject that. Of course, there's problems with that because a prophet said that, right? But the Mormon church today will backpedal from that. And they'll say, no, 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 that's not what we believe. We don't believe Adam was the father. We believe he's the father of all mankind, but we don't believe he's, he's, he's God the father. Brigham Young thought that Adam was God the father. And he was speaking authoritatively as a prophet for the Mormon church. But they do believe this. They believe that Adam is the Ancient of Days and is also known as Michael. So those are the same things. He is the archangel and will come again to the earth in power and glory as the patriarch of the human family preparatory to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Adam is going to, a glorified Adam is going to come back as an archangel, as the patriarch of all humanity in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. Guess where he's coming back? Spring Hill, Missouri. Spring Hill, Missouri is the place of Adam's return. Um, we're not talking about the uh, reestablished or the uh, uh, 
reformed LDS that's here in Kansas City, the thing with the big spiral and all that. That's not what I'm talking about here. This is official LDS teaching that the Ancient of Days, Adam, the patriarch of all humanity, before the second coming of Jesus, is going to come to Spring Hill, Missouri. Now, listen to this. This is Doctrine and Covenants 116.1. Spring Hill is named by the Lord Adam Undi Aman, that's Adam, because, said he, it is the place where Adam shall come to visit his people, or the Ancient of Days shall sit, as spoken of by Daniel the prophet. The Mormons named Spring Hill because of that. They believed that. Um, again, this is just a couple of hours from here, as far as I understand. I don't know exactly where Spring Hill is, but it's not far. Um, again, I, I, and I mentioned this earlier, but this is not to be confused with the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a spinoff from LDS. It's not LDS. It's different. Uh, it broke off from LDS, and they're the ones that built the big spiral over in Independence. Is that where that is? So that's not that's not the cult. That's a spinoff of the cult we're addressing, but that's not the exact cult that we're addressing. They have some of the same beliefs, but they're very different. So Adam is the Ancient of Days. He's coming back to Spring Hill, Missouri. The the uh, the fifth and last distinctive, and this gets us to our difference in terms of the gospel. Right, they don't have a gospel of free grace. Um, grace enables one to lay hold of... E now listen to the language. Grace enables one to lay hold of eternal life only after they have expended their own best efforts. Right? Grace enables one to lay hold of eternal life only after they have expended their best efforts. Does someone know the name of the ancient heresy that that is a recapitulation of? Pelagianism, right? It's it's not even it's not it's not it's really not even semi-Pelagianism. It just is Pelagianism. So uh, that grace doesn't become accessible to you until after you've expended all of your uh, all of your energy in attaining to it and attaining to salvation. So uh, I'll just to summarize, I'll just put works based, but it's works based of the most explicit kind. It's not even subtle. It's pretty obvious. Works-based. Um, that citation comes out of uh, Study Helps. Um, which reads... Which reads as... Let's see. Where's that at? Okay. Um, so it says this, It is through the grace of the Lord Jesus made possible by His atoning sacrifice that mankind will be raised in immortality, every person receiving his body from the grave in a condition of everlasting life. It is likewise through the grace of the Lord that individuals through faith in the atonement of Jesus Christ... And then my citation cuts off there for some reason. I don't have the, uh, uh, I don't have the whole thing. Um, but long story short, the quotation, uh, when I say grace enables one to lay hold of eternal life only after, quote, they have expended their own best efforts, unquote. That comes from study help, so an official document uh, of their teaching. So they do, not have, they do not have a doctrine of free grace. So we're looking at differences on, on many fronts. This is, we're not going to be able to get into it. I thought we would have some time to get into it. I knew this was going to be a lot of material. Um, 
next Sunday we're gonna we're gonna do a Mormonism part two where we're going to look at at our position in contradiction to this. All right, um, and what we're seeing here uh, is a setup for how different we really are. Um, after the ascension, uh, the structure of Christ's church is lost. Uh, that's a huge problem in light of Matthew sixteen eighteen. Jesus promises to build his church. Gates of hell won't prevail against it. Um, secondly, the Godhead is three different gods. We don't believe that. We believe the Godhead is one God subsisting in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, three personal relations in one essence. Um, not three different essences coming together to, you know, do the same things and agree in purpose. Uh, thirdly, Adam celebrated for the fall. We wouldn't say that Adam should be celebrated for the fall. Is there a sense in which we can be grateful that things have played out how they have? Yeah, but only insofar as God is good and he's the one who in his providence has worked it, right? So we, we attribute all glory to God for that. We don't celebrate Adam for his sin, and that's what they do, right? We don't celebrate Adam for his sin. Uh, fourthly, Adam is the Ancient of Days. No, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Ancient of Days. Um, and then fifthly, uh, it's works-based. Grace is only available to those who expend their best efforts in attaining to it, and um, and that's quite lamentable. What you'll realize in talking to Mormons is that it is very much works-based. Uh, there's no concept of assurance in Mormonism. It's a lot like anything else. Islam, um, you know, you'll Roman Catholicism, you'll realize that these people have no assurance of their salvation. Right? Um, they they need they need to work as hard as they can, so that they can be of good mind that they might be saved if God is pleased to save them. And not so much even really that for Mormonism, because they kind of have universal tendencies where uh, they tend to. Th- they tend to say things that would imply that everyone upon final analysis is going to be in heaven. Um, but for them, they're working as hard as they can to be enriched in the eschaton, right? So they want to be enriched in the eschaton. They want to be gods. They want to possess their own planets. And, you know, they're working for those kinds of carnal desires. Very sad, very sad situation. So, uh, again, we'll uh, we'll look at uh, the opposite of these things you know, well, what we're going to do is the method here is we're going to look at scripture. We're going to look at ancient statements in the Christian church. We're going to look at uh, uh, the Second London Confession. We'll look at all of those things uh, together as we look at uh, what the Bible says and what Christians have always believed. And it's not these things. So um, with that, let's go ahead and uh, and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us. We do thank you that your gospel is free grace through Jesus Christ to us sinners, that um, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And um, what a what a rich truth that if we contemplate it and, and really think about it and we consider our own sin, uh, we see how how much of a blessing, how good and 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 how sweet that reality is of redemption through grace alone. Um, Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified as we look at um, Mormonism and other cults like Jehovah's Witnesses or the Watchtower Society and um, Christian Science, Scientology, all of these different things that are out there. Help us to grow as Christians and also help us to be more confident uh, in our evangelism and outreach to to others that we would be able to uh, give an answer for the hope that is within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.